But anyways, uh, I'll be introducing David Brin. Um, his pedigree is huge and vast, so if I get anything wrong, you will correct me. Um, he is a world-renowned science fiction author, and among many other things. His uh, Uplift series of science fiction novels has won the Nebula, Hugo, and Campbell Awards. Um, his, recent not, his recent non-fiction book, The Transparent Society, won the Freedom of Speech Award and the McGannon Award. Uh, he has been in talks with uh, and worked with SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. He's been an advisor to uh, NASA's Advanced Programs and Concept Group and many other uh, defense departments around the world. So without further ado, here is David Brennan. Inviting me, um, I, I am so old that when I got my PhD on this campus, this building did not exist. <laughs> In fact, everything this way and that way did not exist, except for the old grad student apartments. Uh, you know that those been here since the Stone Age. Um, yeah, it's pleasant to have an opportunity to talk about something unlike what I. I'm usually asked to discuss. I do a lot of public speaking every year, and it's messed up my main career, <laughs> which is writing fiction. And it has my wife pissed off. It has me pissed off. She says to me, a hundred years from now, all that's going to be left of you is your descendants and your books. Well, when looked at from one direction, that's a real nice thing to say. Um, I will have stuff a hundred years from now, though um, my books will probably only be read because fans of my daughter, daughter's works, will say, did you know that her father also wrote? <laughs> There's a lot of room up here, actually, and this is more friendly, so why don't you come on up here? Um, but from another angle, of course, it's kind of daunting. It's saying, you know, all this blather you're doing in all these other areas. One of the reasons why I do a lot of travel and public speaking is because of the Transparent Society, which is one of the only public policy books from the 20th century still in print, still selling more. I'm being nagged by, by my publisher to prepare a 20th anniversary edition. Wired Magazine just contacted me about that. And the reason is because everything's coming true. Uh, cop cams, you know, people photographing police. The most important sociologically most important, science fictionally important um, development in human rights in the last 30 years happened in 2013. Who can tell me what it was? Because the news media sure didn't. It didn't fit the narrative. The narrative is everything's going to hell. In 2013, the Obama administration and the courts agreed that uh, a citizen has an absolute right when not interfering to photograph, to film their uh, interactions with authority, with police. And until that point, they were arresting people for taking pictures and all that sort of thing, violating the, the cops' uh, privacy or whatever it was. And um, 
This was something that was predicted in a novel of mine called Earth back in 1989. I'm going to start passing these things around. The, um, in which this is what you'll flip through the pages, you'll see some web pages here, three years before the web. But there's one thing that I want you to do, and that's open the book just like that. Um, there's plenty of room up front. As a matter of fact, I'd recommend it. Um, Acid-free recycled paper, <laughs> fine topography. Oh, this is a really, you should be a connoisseur of books. Well, what I said was... <laughs> <laughs> um, sewn bindings, that's why it holds stays open. This is a really, really high quality book. Even some of the words are good. But um, this one is of a style that was brought to preeminence in science fiction by the great author um, John Brunner back around 1968. And in his wonderful novel, Stand on Zanzibar, highly recommend. I wrote an intro to this classics uh, reissuing. Um, I, I point out that he actually copied the basic motif from non-science fiction, a book called USA by John Dos Passos. And the notion is that you have chapters that follow continuity characters in a complex interleaved plot, many points of view. And, but you intersperse between the chapters glimpses of the world, um, advertisements, radio transcripts. Uh, here you have a transcript of what we would now call today an, an interactive online um, argument chat thing. Um, so um, this, that's the format. I'm going to pass these around, and I want you to keep an eye on your neighbors, please, so that I get everything back. Mm -hmm. But the, um, my, novel, my most recent novel, Existence, follows the same motif. And it's a very good motif for exploring the the intermediate near future, which is by far the most complicated and difficult part of the future to explore. And here I'm going to show you what the British did for cover. Isn't that cool? All right, so um, we can talk about that. Um, or we can talk about. Um, Various, some other things that I'll pass around. I'm going to send this the other way. Please do not get fingerprints on this. It's my only copy of the French edition of beautiful, beautiful graphic novel. It's just been reissued in smaller format by IBW here in San Diego uh, of a graphic novel called The Life Eaters. And this, the, I'm passing around the French edition because it's the only one that was ever full size. The French really liked the full size Dan Dessinger or gra graphic novels. This came in third for the French Dan Dessinger Award, and DC printed about four copies. Um, but IDW now has it out again, just this month, and that's kind of cool. So I'll pass these around for you to look at. So this is another realm of creative endeavor. Um, probably the most famous book of mine is called The Postman. Some of you may have seen Kevin Costner's famous flop by that name in 1997. He sent around an email. Yes, there were emails in 1997, back in the 20th century, saying, of course, you had to crank 
Uh, but the, he sent around an email saying, oh, we've got it made with our um, movie we're coming out with this winter. The only competition we have is James Cameron's little remake about a sinking boat. <laughs> Same weekend. Great timing. But if you like, I can answer questions about Kevin Costner. Uh, the, uh, what it's like to have a movie made of your book, and I hope one is, I hope you all have the experience. Um, and I have to tell you that it's partly your reaction in life to all things is colored by your own personality. He certainly gave me more than enough reasons to fume and storm and be angry. And I have fellow authors who have fumed and stormed and angry because they, that's what they like to do. You know, uh, Harry Harrison was angry about soil and green. What? Harry, it, 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 it did what you wanted with your book. It recruited something on the order of 18 million people to be environmentalists. Yeah, so? <laughs> well, it, most people think it's a darn good flick. Yeah, so? Uh, what's your problem with it then? The cannibalism. Oh, soil and green is people, but couldn't that have been happening in your book off stage? Isn't it totally consistent? It's not a betrayal of your book. He says, what's your point, Bren? Harry, don't you just like to be angry? <laughs> He's an honest man. He admitted it. I like to be happy. And so regarding the postman, I look for excuses to be happy. And one is that Cosman gave me something to say to people in airports. <laughs> hey, you know that movie? The book's better. <laughs> no, seriously, Costner is um, probably one of the world's genius cinematographers. His tragedy is that he was born beautiful. And because he's pretty, he only has one Academy Award when he would have had seven or eight by now as a cinematographer if, he, if he'd been paid ugly. And uh, the Postman movie is probably one of the dozen most beautiful, musically and visually most beautiful motion pictures ever made. Dumber than a stone, but big heart. And that's the part that mattered, was the fact that despite the fact that he was an SOB to me, <laughs> you don't let that interfere with your evaluation of someone. Because it's only part of what they are. It's what they did to you. And quite frankly, the fact that he captured the heart essence of what my book was about, the heart. His main character is my main character from The Postman, with 80 fewer IQ points. <laughs> well, what can I say? Worst things have happened to people. Oh, here we go. At which point, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus in on what I really want to talk about this evening, which is writing. How many of you are interested in writing? Really, that few? <laughs> I would have thought in this class a whole bunch of you were going to. How many of you were too shy to raise your hand? <laughs> <laughs> writing is a skill like any other in that if you had wanted to be a silversmith working for Paul Revere as an apprentice, you would not expect to do it immediately. And yet so many writers I know, so many writers I know um, expect 
to leap like Athena from the brow of Zeus, and, and to be able to write right away. And there's a lot more to it than that. A lot more to it. You have to learn a lot of skills. But above all, you have to recognize that what you are is the world's only industrial grade magicians. What do I mean by that? Magic is the creation of subjective realities in other people's heads that they plausibly believe. No magician ever made it rain. And those movies that show it happening are liars. But we love those lies. Our great human talent is delusion. And so, magic is the creation in other people's minds of plausible suspension of disbelief. Now, how do we do that? You do it with incantations. Around the campfire, for something like half a million years, we did it with storytellers around the campfire, which is why the novella length of writing is the most mythical. And the postman is made from three novellas strung together. And you see this in science fiction. Over half of the professionally published short fiction in the English language today is science fiction. But almost all of the professionally published novellas are science fiction. And the reason is because the science fiction community still has a vibrant magazine system. Whereas, if you want to write short stories, good luck getting them in the New Yorker. I mean, they have two. But the main thing about that incantation is that it consists of words, right? Strung together, rhythmically, carefully, crafted to cause magic to appear in your head. And we do it in an industrial grade level. I string chains of black squiggles together. In existence, there were about one million of them. About a million little black squiggles. Perhaps you've heard of them called letters. And what you are is you are so well trained we fooled society into training 90% of our citizens to be able to scan their gaze, not their eyes, remember? If you're writing science fiction, you have to be careful about something called metaphorical break. You do not scan your eyes across this page. That would hurt. <laughs> because it is plausible that some alien might do that. So you pay more attention to control over metaphor in science fiction than in any other field. You scroll your gaze up over these chains of black squiggles. And you are so skilled at it that as you sweep across, you forget about the black squiggles. You completely lose all awareness of black squiggles. Instead, instead, as you're scanning across, you're unreeling an incantation by an industrial grade skilled magician. And out of the unreeling that you're doing there. You, feel, you, you experience star-spanning explosions, deep human insights, kissy, 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 love face, face, and all sorts of stuff you experience. And the thing that I have to tell you is that it is partly genius, but it is mostly skill that enables you to be one of the incantatory technicians 
who can string these incantations together in ways that people will not only be able to decrypt down and cause to erupt into those subjective transformations, but want to. What is the greatest compliment a reader can pay you as an author? Damn you, damn you, I almost lost my job because of you. <laughs> At the end of every one of my novels, you'll find 50 names in the acknowledgments. People I thank, who are part of my ferocious pre-reader group, who I put, put it past. I'm supposedly a modern math of science fiction. And why do I do this? Because I'm constantly challenging myself because I don't want to be bored. And so I have to try something more challenging than the last one. But above all, industrial quality control. <coughs> if nothing else, I want to know where more than two or three people at the same time put, uh, not at the same time, but more than two or three people put the book down at the same point to feed the cat, to feed their kids, to get their assignment done. If I find out that more than three or four people put the book down at the same place, even if they were happy, I will tighten that scene. We have a sadomasochistic relationship, and we know what you are. <laughs> now, you want to switch to the other side of the whip, don't you? <laughs> that is a metaphor. Learn how to juggle them. Juggle many of them. That is how you do it. You want the reader to <coughs> hate you at certain points. This is why I tell my students the most important thing for you to do in writing a story is to make your first substantial work a murder mystery. Oh, I want to say that I'm a science fiction author. Who can guess? Yes. Because it teaches you how to write plot. Exactly. It, you're being taught by the right person. <laughs> you are, it teaches you how to plot. In science fiction, you can hide from yourself that you don't really know what you're doing in the story arc by adding more stuff. In in romance, you can add some kissy-kissy ravish or whatever it is. In any genre, you can distract from it, especially the so-called realistic <coughs> mainstream. But in a murder mystery, there are really only three ways you can respond when you find out who done it. Three ways. Huh? Where the hell did that come from? The second way. Um, of course. What's the third way? Dawning look of utter horror and self-loathing. Ah! Of course! Of course! Of course! Of course! Which one do you want? I said we've settled what you are. <laughs> you want dents in your forehead. You want to rip the book in half, throw it out the window, and dive after it. <laughs> if you cause in your reader moments of self-loathing of the right kind, 
then they will go and buy your next book. And that is your objective, right? Your objective secondary to being a great lonely artist. Okay, okay. You don't have to be lonely. You can be a great artist, and then you're, the next morning after the great thing you did last night, cup of tea in hand, you sit down, and the other you sits down and say, okay, what did the genius do last night? Because the craftsmanship is, and the editorial is at least as important. The skills. Now, I get a lot of submissions of some sort. I, I, I'm doing an, an anthology about transparency in the future, and so some really top authors are sending me stories, some of which are not top stories. Uh, got a really good one from Nancy Fulton yesterday. It really improved my morale. Um, but among the skills that are extremely difficult are among the most important. And one is point of view. You have to be able to grasp how to have good control over point of view. From whose perspective is the story being told? And the first decision is, of course, first person versus third person. Very occasional Nancy's story I read last night is second person. Don't do that <laughs> until you have learned skills, because it's a difficult thing to do right. I'm going to tell you, I think, the most useful piece of advice. And that is, if you are going to be a painter, and you spend some days copying a Monet at the art museum, no one thinks less of you. You've learned some of the techniques that it takes to paint like no Monet, and nobody says that that's going to make you a slave to Monet for the rest of your life. If you have trouble understanding and believing that Picasso was anything but a jerk messing around with where the noses go, look at what he painted when he was 15. He was out velasquez in Velasquez. Once you see what Picasso painted at 15 and 16, you go, okay. Then he, what he was doing later in life was deliberate. And I better pay attention. The same is true in writing. The most powerful thing you can do is to, no, the most powerful thing you can do is workshop. We had a workshop here when I was a grad student. It included Pat Murphy, Werner Vinge, Greg Bear, Raymond Feist. It was amazing. Highly synergistic. An amazing home. And we were incredibly cruel with each other. That's what you do. And by the way, we couldn't do it online. Because <laughs> there was no online. So we met on sa one Saturday a month and handed over the extensively mimeographed or Xeroxed things. Everybody would read them for a couple hours, we'd snack, and then we'd lay into each other. And you learned. Because you cannot spot your own mistakes. 
but other people will spot your mistakes for you. Criticism is the only known antidote to error. See to Kate. And you cannot spot your own mistakes. If you're scientifically trained, you can spot some of them, because you've been taught to say the most sacred phrase of science, I might be wrong. And so you'll catch maybe 5%. If you're married, you'll catch another 20%. <laughs> Workshopping is how you do it. But the number two piece of advice I have is do what they do, the artists are doing at the art museum. And that is be willing to copy something, just to learn. If you're having trouble with dialogue, find a passage of dialogue that you adore and retype it. And I am telling you now, do not cheat. Oh, I, I understand. I understand the typing. I'm just going to read it. What's going to happen if you read it? Your eye will scan the black squiggles of the incantation. The incantation will erupt and reify, and you will feel star-spanning explosions, deep human insights, and kissy-kissy love face. It will work because it was done by a master. And you'll have learned nothing. If you retype it, there's a real chance it's going to go through a different part of your brain and you go, oh, oh, you manipulative bastard. And you can do that with dialogue, you can do it with scene setting, you can do it with point of view. And it will teach you practical methods that I would have to explain to you in great detail. Now, don't be shy. Raise your hand if you think, here's this commercial writer up there, and he has no business lecturing to me. I'm a great artist. <laughs> Come on, raise your hand. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to do some readings, because that's what I was invited to do. Anna Joy was starting to send me signals. <laughs> and it's going to show you a few variations on establishing a point of view. I often ask students to retype the first three pages of a Heinlein juvenile novel. Not spectacular literature. I don't think he was a really spectacular writer, though sometimes he went into high octane. And the last third of most Heinlein novels is just fine. But you know how to open it. What would happen is you would find yourself sitting on the shoulder or riding above the ear. There are different levels of point of view, even when it's third person. Even when it's first person, there are different degrees of intensity. What was the Alexandria Quartet? You find out, what was it? The one where you find out that the detective was the murderer all along? And you've been following inside his first person point of view. And yet when you read it a second time angrily, you realize there's no particular point in here in which he can thought to himself that he's innocent. As a matter of fact, there are all sorts of clues in there where he is his surface thoughts are consistent with his knowing that he's guilty. Now that's a master class technique. 
and nobody's asking you to do master class things at the beginning. But Heinlein was great at establishing point of view. You would start in a science fictional world that's different than ours, 200 years in the future, from the point of view of some kid who's walking along and the most amazing things about the world are the things you learn from, not from what surprises the kid, but from what he takes for granted. He's walking along and say, oh God, the, the Zaxtaplus are invading again. <laughs> Dad is going to be so pissed. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to have to spend the entire afternoon cleaning up after, after, after school. What have you learned from that? Two sentences and you've learned that this is a very different situation. You've not only learned that Kazakhstan's invade, but they do it more than once, and that he's not afraid. There's nothing great literature about that, those two sentences. But it certainly established the scene. In Dust and Blood, with the sharp tang of terror stark in his nostrils, a man's mind will sometimes pull forth odd relevancies. After half a lifetime in the wilderness, most of it spent struggling to survive, it struck Gordon as odd how obscure memories would pop into his mind right at the middle of a life and death fight. Panting under a bone-dry thicket, crawling desperately to find refuge, he suddenly experienced a recollection as clear as the dusty stones under his nose. It was a memory of contrast of a rainy afternoon in a warm, safe university library long ago, of a lost world filled with books and music and carefree philosophical ramblings, words on a page. Dragging his body through the rough, unyielding bracken, he could almost see the letters black against white, and although he couldn't recall the obscure author's name, the words came back with utter clarity. Short of death itself, there is no such thing as total defeat. There is never a disaster so devastating that a determined person cannot pull something out of the ashes by risking all that he or she has left. Nothing in the world is more dangerous than a desperate man. Gordon wished the long-dead writer were here right now, sharing his predicament. He wondered what Pollyannish glow the fellow might find in this catastrophe. few paragraphs, it sets your situation. That's close point of view. You're writing inside the person's head, you're experiencing his thoughts, and you have to get the grittiness of the sense of what's going on. Now you'll notice there was almost, I don't think there was a single case of the word had. Past perfect is not forbidden but it's desperately death-dealing to a novice writer. Were and was are almost as bad. They are indicative that you're doing an authorial lecture and that you are not in the character's point of view. But some, uh, some narrator, meaning you, are talking at the reader. This is the beginning of the second novella. These were published as separate novellas. This character, Gordon, he's, and I didn't use his name at all in the movie, he's the only 
character in, I think, ever to be nominated and it came in second for three different Hugo Awards. Novella, novella. Um, the Black Bull Terrier snarled and foamed. It yanked it and strained at its chain, whipping froth at the excited, shouting men leaning over the low wooden walls of the arena. A scarred, one-eyed mongrel growled back at the pit bull from across the ring. Its rope tether hummed like a bowstring, threatening to tear up the ring holes in the wall. The dog pits stank. The sweet smoke of locally grown tobacco, liberally cut with marijuana, rose in thick, roiling fumes. Farmers and townspeople yelled definitely from rows and benches overlooking the crude arena. Those nearest the ring pounded on the wooden slats, encouraging the dog's hysterical frenzy. Leather glove handlers pulled at their canine gladiators back far enough to grip their collars, then turned to face the VIP bench overlooking the center of the pit. A burly, bearded dignitary, better dressed than most, puffed on his homemade cigar. He glanced quickly at the slender man who sat impassively to his right. His eyes were shaded by a visor cap. The stranger sat quite still, in no way showing his feelings. The heavy set official turned back to the handlers and nodded. A hundred men shouted at once at the dog as the dogs were loose. The snarling animals shot at one another like quarrels, their argument uncomplicated. Fur and blood flew as the crowd cheered. On the dignitary's bench, the elders yelled no less fiercely than the villagers. Like them, most had bets riding on the outcome. But the big man with a cigar, the chairman of public safety for the town of Curtin, Oregon, puffed furiously without enjoyment, his thoughts cloudy and thick. Once more, he glanced at the stranger sitting to his right. The thin fellow was unlike anyone else in the arena. His beard was neatly trimmed, his hair, black hair cut and combed, barely pass over the ears. The hooded blue eyes seemed to pierce and inspect critically, like in the images of Old Testament prophets. He had the weathered look of a traveler, and he wore a uniform, one no living citizen of Curtin had ever expected to see again. On the peak of the stranger's cap, the burnished image of the horseman gleamed in the light of the oil lanterns. Somehow it seemed shinier than any metal had a right to be. Wow. Uh, any of you ever see the movie? Uh, well, you know what it's about. The basic notion was captured. Here's a little story, Here's a little introduction. It annoyed Io's best friend to give birth to a four kilo cylinder of tightly wound medium gray placental solvent filters. I think that's pretty much sci-fi. in a um, very, very short story contest in Wired Magazine um, based upon a six-word story of Hemingway's. Who can tell me? Do, do, do any of you remember that? The famous? Yes. Um, for sale, baby shoes, number one. For sale. Deliver it. For sale. 
baby shoes that are worn. Okay, there you see. It's different. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. That's sad. They had a contest. Here's William Shatner's. Failed SAT, lost scholarship, and he doesn't rock it. What does this one say? But anyway, they had a bunch of them, and all of them were like that. They were vignettes of a momentary theme or a situation. <coughs> Only one of them ha had, in six words, three separate scenes, action, adventure, romance, and tristesse. Now, how can you do that in six words? Vacuum collision, orbits diverge, farewell, love. Anybody want to hear it again? All right. Vacuum collision, orbits diverge, farewell, love. I mean, what's, what story did that tell? Somebody? Vacuum collision, obviously something happened in space. Disaster. Orbits diverge. Farewell, love. Well, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my best openings, and I never finished it. I have not finished a single time travel story. I've started four. Because the part of me that got a PhD in physics here refuses to cooperate. <laughs> As a little kid, I used to think every family was annoyed by time travelers. And that sort of makes you want to read a little more. And that's the key, you see. If your first sentence grabs the poor Bryn Mawr or NYU grad who has to work her way through all these damn over the transom. They know at least they no longer have to take them out of the envelope and slip them back in the envelope and nail them back. And now it's just punch, 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 which I think is probably more dreary. Um, if you can catch her with one sentence, then she'll read the next paragraph. If you catch her with three paragraphs, she'll read the first page. If she reads the first page and is entranced by the first page, she'll read the first chapter, and if the rest sucks, you'll get a personal letter. <laughs> so there's a cascading of importance, and the opening is all important. After all, why should visitors from the future want to bother us in particular? Dad piloted the island ferry, Mom ran the village bookstore and souvenir shop, we weren't special in any obvious way. So if people from some distant century chose to come back and stare at us, they must be doing the same thing to lots of folks, right? Just ignore them some, my father used to say. Treat them like all the other tourists. Good advice, though it was sometimes hard to disregard strange figures who popped into existence suddenly in some shadow or alley 
or just beyond the corner of your eye, whispering in odd accents and weird dialects, peering about and pointing with obvious excitement. Then there were those occasional bungled assassination attempts. Things like that are kind of hard to overlook. Still, in a sense, Dad was right. We had plenty of experience dealing with tourists. Each summer, the hotels and campgrounds of Sea Island filled with mainlanders from New York and other cities, eager to shrug off urban pressures, yet hauling their big city quirks and hang-ups with them. Abandoning all fashion sense and decorum, they roamed about in shorts and mini-tops, gabbling loudly, complaining about pouty days, then moaning when the sunshine flayed their shoulders. Local businesses counted on the seasonal trade, but it took real effort to maintain a welcoming smile at times when our village seemed like one of those guano islets you hear about, with every square foot taken over by swarms of squawking boonies. The madness would last until autumn winds blew most of them back to their roosts in sparkling Manhattan. So we were already geared to handle outlandish visitors, and I guess the time travelers ought to be included, only they showed up year-round, even as winter sleet lashed our seaside town, and they hardly spent a dime. We called them gawkers. Dad thought they were frugal out of prudence so as not to disrupt history with an economic paradox. But really, was it going to change the time stream all that much to buy some picture postcards? Anyway, if they were so worried about temporal interference, why did so many century-hopping visitors grab free souvenirs, pieces of our fence, paving stones of our walk, even stuff from the trash cans we put on the curb? Mom gave up trying to grow flowers, and Dad stopped replacing the main pocket on our mailbox. They'd only vanish in a day or so. I deduced that our descendants were stingy bastards, Highly evolved, perhaps, but miserly and petty thieves, nonetheless. Oh, they were a nuisance, all right, wearing authentic period costumes while trying to feign some legitimate business in the neighborhood. Our little resort village always had plenty of unknown postmen, UPS drivers and meter readers roaming about, acting busy without ever actually delivering anything or reading any meters. If you ask me, they looked foolish in their camouflage micro with their micro cameras, pretending not to look while aiming pinky rings and glassy buttons my way. Usually they wore fancy sunglasses, and you could tell there were images flickering on the inside. If you brushed by one of them real close, you could spot flesh-colored earpieces and often under, overhear faint whispers of commentary from some kind of audio guide. Once when I was 12, I remember clearly overhearing my own name, murmured in awed tones from one of those ear thingies. That's when I started catching on. The gawkers weren't just tourists coming to enjoy our sea views. They were traveling back in time to look at me. I admit I started experimenting at that point, changing direction to deliberately pass close by. Unnerved gawkers reacted by getting all shaky and sweaty as if I might slay them with a touch. <laughs> One or two actually fainted, but if I tried to offer help, someone always appeared, a tour guide, a cop. Out of nowhere, the hustle, the stricken went away. Try to pretend you don't notice them, Mom advised me, putting a stop to my experiments. I think they get in trouble when we pay attention. Promise me you'll leave the poor things alone, will you, Jack? Soberly, I told her that I would, and I kept my word mostly, except one time when I guess I acted a little mean. It's a little different. Um, I should open things up for questions. How is it 15 minutes or is it 45 until the it's over. Uh, it's, a, it's about half an hour. About half 15 an hour. to 20. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read to you a little bit of nonfiction. 
from the Transparent Society. Uh, could we have a little light in here? Oh, it's that red thing, right? <laughs> Thanks. <clears throat> a Greek myth tells of a farmer, Academos, who did a favor for the sun god. In return, the mortal was granted a garden wherein he could say anything he wished, even criticism of the mighty Olympians, without retribution. I have often mulled over that little story, wondering how Academos could ever really trust Apollo's promise. After all, the story Greek deities were notoriously mercurial, petty, and vengeful. They could never be relied upon to keep their word, especially if provoked by sensory mortals. In other words, they were a lot like human leaders. I concluded that there were only two ways academics could truly be protected. First, Apollo might set up impenetrable walls around the glade, so dense that even keen-eyed Hermes could not peer through or listen. Alas, the garden wouldn't be very pleasant after that, and Academos would have few visitors to talk to. The alternative was to empower Academos somehow to enforce the god's promise. For this, some equalizing factor was needed to make them keep their word, even when, mortal, when the mortal and his friends started telling bad Zeus jokes. That equalizing factor could only be knowledge. The roots of this particular legend permeate Western thought. In the days of Pericles, free citizens of Athens used to gather at the Academy, named after the same garden of Academos, where individuals would freely debate the issues of the day, a liberty that lasted while Pericles was around to remind them of the contract they had made, a pact of openness. Alas, it was a new and difficult concept, far more complex than ruled by king or oligarchy. For a variety of reasons, the miracle did not long outlive the great Democrat. Outspoken Socrates eventually paid a stiff price for practicing candor in the academy, whereupon his student Plato took paradoxical revenge by writing stern denunciations of openness, calling instead for strict government by an enlightened delete of his own design. Plato's advice, which had served to justify countless tyrants during the following two and a half millennia remained influential almost to this generation. But now at last, the vision of Pericles is getting another trial run. Today's academy extends far beyond the sacred confines of the world's thousand or so major universities. Throughout the neo-West, and to some extent the rest of the world, people have begun to accept the daring notion that ideas are not in themselves toxic at least not to those from all social classes who cultivate brave minds. Free speech is increasingly seen as the best font of criticism, the only practical and effective antidote to error. Moreover, most honorable people have little to fear if others know a great deal about them, as long as it goes both ways. Let there be no mistake, this is a hard lesson to swallow, especially since each of us would be a tyrant if we could some of us with the best of intentions. Very little in our history has prepared us for the task ahead, namely living in a tribe of more than six billion equal citizens, each guided by his or her own sovereign will, loosely administered by chiefs we elect and by just rules that we made through hard negotiation among ourselves. Any other generation would have thought it an impossible ambition, though countless ancestors sweated and strove 
getting us to the point where we can try. Even among those who profess allegiance to this new hope, there is a bitter struggle over how best to perfect, how best to protect it from the old gods of wrath, bigotry, conspiracy, and oppression. Spirits who reside not on some mountain peak, but in the hearts of each man or woman who tries to expand a little secular power or to profit by suppressing others. Perhaps someday our descendants will all be mature enough to curb these impulses by themselves. But meanwhile, a way is needed to foil the self-justified ambitions of those who would rationalize robbing freedom from the rest of us, saying that it's their right or that it's for our own good. According to some vigorous champions of liberty, the best means to protect our worldwide academy is obvious. We must build walls to safeguard every private garden so that freedom may thrive in each secure sanctum of the mind. And this book, uh, 20 years ago, was first written when they were talking about getting everybody to encrypt everything, trying to hide from elites, protect ourselves from elites by hiding. And unfortunately, that is still the reflex of people who are sincere about wanting to protect our freedom. To this, I can only reply that it's been tried. And there is not a single example of a commonwealth based on that principle that ever thrived. There is a better way, a method that is primarily responsible for this renaissance we're living in. Accountability is a light that can shine even on gods of authority. Whether they gather in the Olympian heights of government amid the spuming currents of commerce, or in the Hadean shadows of criminality. They cannot harm us while pinned by its glare. Accountability is the only defense that ever adequately protected free speech in a garden that stands proudly with no walls. Now clearly, it's a different kind of writing. And yet, the tools are very similar. There are people who overlap both fiction and nonfiction. A fair number of them do it very well. Some of them do it much better than me, than I do. But if you do one kind very well, then terrific. But I'd never recommend creative writing majors. I always recommend that you find something useful to do that is. We live in the world's first civilization that's shaped like this. Heracles, Heracles in Athens tried for this. Most world civilizations have been like this. A few lords lording it over masses below, deliberately keeping them ignorant because they did not want competition from below. We live in one in which a vast and empowered middle is unafraid of the rich and outnumbers the poor. That's important because when you outnumber them, you can surround them and force them not to be poor anymore. Of course, it is to our deficit. This diamond dream is not as well realized as we all know it should be, but pay attention to your values. 
your values are such that you are discontented with the degree to which we are not living up with to this, as seen in events in Baltimore and so on. Always step back and notice the phenomenon of you. If you object that this is imperfect, that is what you were raised to do. If you look at all the movies that you've watched, the most common, I, if I had time, I'd milk it out of you. How many of you think that movies convey propaganda? <laughs> what is the most common propaganda message? I don't have time for this. You can Especially shout religion, buy stuff, all these things. <laughs> you don't count. <laughs> <laughs> Suspicion of authority. You cannot name a popular film that you've enjoyed in the last 30 years, or 10, <laughs> that, did, that did not preach as its principal message. Suspicion of authority, because that's how you keep your hero in jeopardy. Tolerance, diversity. Name for me a popular hero that you've enjoyed in films that didn't express some eccentric trait. Eccentricity. And individualism. These were not the major mythologies of past civilizations. Why is Edward Snowden a hero, Julian Assange? Because they were trained to, first and foremost, zero in on faults of their own culture. Name for me one in the past that, that made that a principal trait conveyed in propaganda. Now, some of you are steaming. I invented suspicion of authority. I invented tolerance and diversity and eccentricity. No, you didn't. The value system that you are relating when you stand up for those things are values that you suckled from a culture that wants you to have them. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. What conspiracy would spread propaganda saying suspicion of authority? It's a little hard to envision. Maybe we just did it ourselves. But what I'm asking you to do is to notice your own reaction. Because it's pertinent if you're going to be conveying to other people persuasively for you to understand where you got. Do I, because I now watch films and immediately see the eccentricity, the suspicion of authority, the tolerance means, do I reject them because they are propagandizing me? No, I was raised on that. I, I spread those memes myself. But if you're going to be a master at this, then you need to recognize that you are doing it deliberately. And Hollywood does convey some nasty memes as well. One, no institution can ever function. That's the idiot plot. That enables you to keep your hero in jeopardy if they can't call for help. And the second is, all your neighbors are sheep. So that the hero can't call for help. 
Do you see the trick? Now, sometimes you can, when you notice the trick, you break it. All Spider-Man films, not great art, but Spider-Man spends 90% of the film saving New Yorkers, but there's always one scene in which New Yorkers save Spider-Man. It's always the best scene in the movie. Because once you can see the trope, you can break it deliberately. Read Joseph Campbell's The Story of Myth and all these things and all of that. Then shatter it deliberately. One last piece of advice. How many of you are undergrads? Go online and look at David Brim advice for college students. You are wasting my tax dollars. You are wasting the amount of money that you're. you're I predict this. I doubt any of you are taking advantage of your time here. I'm serious. Not one of you. Maybe you. You've heard this before. It works. Trust me. I'm. I'm vouching for it. It works. You walk from your dorm cave to your class cave to your commons cave where you eat, and you're passing between these cliffs. And you're looking at them the same way a caveman looked at cliffs. And it never occurs to you to go inside. Watch my video. I'll tell you how to get a map of the campus, randomly choose a building, stand outside the building, once a month, randomly choose a floor, throw a ball down the hall, pick up the ball, you've chosen a random door, knock on that door and say, excuse me, what do you do here? <laughs> You're laughing because A, it's embarrassing to think about, B, it's a surprise, and C, it is striking you right now how you've betrayed yourself by not doing this. Passive it. These are buildings right here where humanity is being changed or challenged in real time in one of the finest universities, in one of the finest creations human humanity has ever made. And you're going through it by rote. All right, some of you are actually interested in what you're going through by rote. Now, always in life, ask yourself, What's the worst that can happen? My wife, she was not my wife then, she said she would never marry a man who had not jumped out of an airplane from 10,000 feet. I begged and wheedled and whined and moaned, and she said, all right, wimp, you can have a parachute. <laughs> now, I asked myself, what's the worst that can happen? And she was worth it. What's the worst thing that can happen if you knock on a random door in a random building here and say, excuse me, what do you do here? Go away, little kid. You're bothering me. <laughs> excuse me, what do you do here? Go in pairs if you like. It makes a great date. I'm serious. You learn a lot from a person if you go on a date with this date. <laughs> like whether or not they think it's cool.
But above all, you might make a friend for life. You get a free hour-long tour of something you had no idea before. I got three summer jobs this way. Shame on you. Betraying your parents, the taxpayers, and yourself by not squeezing this place. For every drop of interestingness that it has. And with that, I'll open it up for questions. I have some other passages to read, but I hope I did enough reading to. You've done a wonderful amount of reading. All right, right. I could, I could read a couple more passages if that's what you want, or I'll be happy to answer questions. questions. This is a perfect time for Perfect time for questions. Questions? questions. Yes, sir. What are your thoughts on the advice, write drunk, edit sober? <laughs> well, yeah, we'll both write drunk, edit sober. You don't have to. You need substances if you're from the 60s. You can always <laughs> trigger a flashback. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is, this is my method for enjoying movies, by the way. I turn down dials, you know, and adjust dials before I go in. Otherwise, my wife will kill me because I'm noticing all this stuff. <laughs> That's why one of my favorite movies was The Fifth Element, even though it was totally lobotomized, because I, I was sitting there drooling. Pretty. <laughs> um, in a sense, but you can make your own drunkenness. You, know, you basically, you know, uh, one of my reasons why my production rate has gone down is because I just can't stay up this late as I used to. But you have to edit the next day and deal with that genius in you. You have to have a multi-mind approach. You have to recognize that you are many. And always, if there's any concept that you have to have, look it up. It's the positive sum game. Because you are members of a, one of the first civilizations in which this, the zero-sum game, is not the fundamental assumption. Fundamental assumption is the positive sum. And if you understand that distinction, then you can truly be a warrior for this civilization, because it's a unique one. And if it fails, if this comes back, they're going to make sure it's another 2,500 years before this is tried again. I was wondering if, as a Hugo-winning author, you could speak a little bit oh, to God. the Sad Puppies ballot <laughs> and like what you think the Hugos should do or should handle that. All recording devices are to be shut off. <laughs> <laughs> Science fiction used to be a smaller community. Now its tropes have been adopted universally. And as a result, the science fiction community itself has weakened tremendously. For instance, the greatest of all the world science fiction conventions was mine in 1984. That's when I came out. I was the hot young mm -hmm. SOB <laughs> in 1984 in LA. And there's never been one that size again, because at that point, everybody in LA saw what, this, what fun this was. And they spun off their own conventions. Now we have Comic-Con, which is something like 
35 times the size of the World Science Fiction Convention. Same thing has happened within the Hugo Award is voted on by the fans who attend the World Science Fiction Convention. The Nebula is voted on by the professionals. But so many people have marginally gotten into the Science Fiction Writers of America through very small scale things. And I'm not saying they shouldn't get in. But the fact is that it's changed the voting. It's made it a lot more. Shall we say arranged by groups who campaign and have agendas? And what she's talking about is how some right wingers created a campaign to buy up memberships to this year's World Science Fiction Convention and basically made what had been a at least somewhat pretend, pretend mild pressure on the awards in directions that I actually quite agree with. I never minded a certain amount of compensatory pressure thumb on the scale in the direction of bringing in more genders and more races and, and ethnicities. I participated in promoting science fiction for regarding Latin America, Africa. I was the big promoter of Lee Tsishin's new book that's been come out this year, um, which is the greatest work of science fiction ever to come out of Asia by a long shot, by an order of magnitude called The Three-Body Problem. So I'm all in favor of those to a mild degree. The people who had been doing that had become aggressive. And the response by the right-wingers was overwhelming. It was huge. They basically swamped the Eagles Award this last year and got John C. Wright into every category. And if, I, if I'm going to have to choose sides, I will choose the opponents to these guys. But I think that a case can be made that perhaps The good guys had been a little bit too aggressively sanctimonious, and that they had contributed to this. But there's no way that I can say this in public. If I say 99.9% of the blame is on these right-wing, you know, macho, but then I, I will receive a firestorm of the implicit are when you live in a polarized society where politics has been destroyed deliberately and we are in phase eight of the American Civil War. And under those circumstances, pretty much have to choose sides. And if it goes the same way as the other most of the other phases of the Civil War, then okay. Questions? Yes. Do you think it's important to have a writing mentor, and did you ever have one yourself? Well, I had mentors of various sorts to varying degrees. 
for instance, my brother is a journalist, my father is a journalist, but he never edited my stuff. My brother was an old-fashioned city news bureau trained journalist, and so he went down my manuscript as cruelly as anybody could possibly be, as only a brother could be. I mean, there were places in my first uh, novel where there was S-N-O-R-E down the side, or trail of ever diminishing seas. You learn. But critics are more important than mentors. Besides which, you just have me. Um, I've had the more important kind of mentor was Paul Anderson, who just by his example showed me how to write novella. Uh, this is the probably the greatest storyteller I've ever known, P-O-U-L, Anderson. Not a, not a great literary writer, but I would always squint and envision him in skins by a campfire because he did the novella, which is the length that a tribal storyteller would have told by a campfire. Exactly that length. It is the great mythic length that is essentially dead in the English language, except in science fiction. The short story is very different than the novel in a great many ways. I've been fortunate I've been able to write both. But the short story is, the aim is to have a ringing tone in the air that leaves everyone silent. Not entirely sure what just happened. Not entirely sure what even happened just now in the story. Very often, uh, it's the distinction between Twilight Zone and a movie. A movie has to have a third act that explains things, where things are brought to fruition. In a Twilight Zone episode, it doesn't necessarily over when it's over. It's the condition of the reader that you're aiming for. And you want to leave them stunned. Whereas a novel, you want to leave them, you know, saying, whew, ah, ah, I had a little while to go back to life before I run out and buy her next book. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah. Um, I was curious, and to what extent does your, uh, your PhD degree, uh, degree in you know physics, haunt you while you're writing these uh, science fiction books? Well, all right. He asks, um, to what extent is my being a scientist, my PhD, astrophysics, and all of that? That brings up two things. One. Only 10% or so of science fiction authors are scientifically trained as I am. It was actually a poorly named field. It should be, have been called speculative history. Not speculative fiction, speculative history. Think about it. You're taking the one great story, us, with, filled with tragedy, filled with disaster, filled with the horrible statecraft that we got from these sorts of civilizations. And you're trying to extrapolate it in down possible future paths. Ideally, the best science fiction warns of possible snake pits or quicksand pits or minefields as we're racing ahead into the future. That's the ideal form of science fiction, which is the self-preventing prophecy. Who can name the greatest of the self-preventing prophecies? 1984. 1984. A, a novel that so frightened people that somewhere on the, on the order of a quarter of a billion people have as their central metaphor to prevent Big Brother. And the main difference between a sincere person of the right and a sincere person of the left is where they think Big Brother's coming from. 
a sincere person of the right, if they still exist, is concerned about snooty academics and faceless government bureaucrats. A sincere person of the left is, is concerned about um, conniving oligarchs and faceless corporations, to which the answer, proper answer, is duh. Big Brother could come from any of those directions. It happens that right now, one is more danger than the other. But I remember the Soviet Union. I remember campus bully radicals. So the self-preventing prophecy is an example of a story that is so chilling that it, I mentioned Soylent Green. We possibly exist because of the worried about accidental nuclear war stories like Dr. Strangelove on the beach, fail-safe, and so on. That's powerful stuff. So why am I so down on dystopias? Because most of the modern dystopias that you see in films and in books uh, aren't trying to do that. All they are is lazy. Um, I don't know if I answered your question successfully. Partially. Um, the other part I was curious about is a lot of your writing experience with you know science itself. You know. Oh science, yeah, science. Um, there are some of the finest hard science fiction authors who do real scientific speculative science fiction were English majors. Some of them came from here. Do you know that UCSD is the university on this planet that has had the most successful science fiction author graduates? De, uh, the uh, Chancellor Dines, about 15 years ago, held a gala evening saying, is there something in the water? So Greg Bear, Nancy Kress, Kim Stanley Robinson, you'll see him on campus at least once or twice a year. You know, they love him in the literature department. What am I, Chuck Wooder? Gregory Benford, he went to grad school here. Werner uh, Vinging. Um, but uh, especially, Stan Robinson, uh, Greg Bear, Nancy <coughs> Kress, all English majors. If their life depended upon it, they could not parse their way out of a simple algebraic equation. But they understand the fundamental essence of science fiction writing, and that is it's real easy to get expert advice. Mm -hmm. Pizza and beer is usually enough. <laughs> But the thing, way to really drive a scientist into giving you all the advice and technical information you could possibly want is to offer to name a character after them. <laughs> if they give you lots of advice, you say, okay, 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 that character will have sex on stage. <laughs> or die gruesomely. It's amazing how often they choose the latter. <laughs> but you have a lot, you have stuff in your pocket to offer. You know that, that that you know no other industry can can offer is for consultancy fee. You get to murder them on stage on pages of the novel. That's that's worth a lot. Um, I don't know if I answered your, your question successfully, but uh, one or two more. Anybody? Well, I just uh, there was one last piece of advice. No, I guess I'll just beam it to you. So thanks a lot. Goodbye. <laughs>
just want to make sure I Thank you.